Open your Bibles to the book of Judges. We're in chapter 11. Open your Bible or navigate on your device, depending on what generation you belong to and how spiritual you are. I could go either way. I'm going to leave that alone. So we're in Judges chapter 11. Our text is verses 29 through 40. The topic, Jephthah's daughter and her girlfriends retreat to the hills for two months to mourn her father's foolish vow to offer her life as a sacrifice. The title of our message, The Hills Are Alive with the Sound of Mourning. No, I'm not going to sing it. How many want us to sing it? Oh, that's not enough. The hills are alive with the sound of mourning. Anyway, Father, thank you for our message this morning. We believe that uh, you are here in this place by your Holy Spirit, who you promised would be our teacher, and that his anointing and his blessing upon these inspired words would come to our heart and reveal Jesus to us. He's on every page of Scripture, Lord, and we thank you for that. Lord, we also need application for our life. We don't want to miss the context and uh, what was happening with Israel, but we, we want to have it apply to our own lives as well so that we're better for having been here this morning. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. It's a word that can be offensive, but if Jerry Seinfeld could get away with it on television, I should be okay using it because he's non-offensive, as I recall. That's funny, but nobody thinks that. So I just, it's always that first joke that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the morning. So everything's serious from now on. What's the word? I'm talking about the word Nazi in the season seven episode of Seinfeld titled The Soup Nazi. By the way, as an aside, one of the brothers here this morning told me about a friend of his who in the late 40s after World War II called somebody a voice Nazi at high school and got expelled. Uh, And so it it can be a very serious word. And so I, I am a little bit sensitive to it. But the episode, The Soup Nazi, you'll remember its use revolved around an exaggeration of the excessively strict requirements for ordering soup. Deviate just a little and the soup Nazi would proclaim, no soup for you. That's right. One of the recurring issues in the New Testament is the excessively strict requirements that certain so-called religious men put both on Jews and on Christians. Among the Jews, the strict sect of the Pharisees kept on heaping religious burdens upon the average Jew that they had no real hope of ever keeping. Jesus said of them, they crush people with unbearable religious demands, never lifting a finger to ease the burden. Among the Gentile Christians, a group called the Judaizers insisted that salvation required, in addition to faith in Jesus Christ, that you keep the law of Moses, especially the rite of circumcision. These men might as well have said, no God for you. There seems to be a natural tendency, even a bent, towards adding works to the promises of God. Christians do it too. If you listen carefully to many Bible studies you'll realize the emphasis is on what you must be doing for God. Same is true of most Christian lifestyle books. The author outlines a program of behaviors that will bring God's blessings upon you to the extent you are vigilant and obedient in your personal commitment to the program or the principles. That approach to Christian living can and often does have the opposite effect. 
Instead of experiencing the blessings of God, you lose all joy as you constantly fall short in your commitments to the points of the program, and then you begin to believe that God cannot bless you. Or worse yet, you keep the points of the program and you begin to think of yourself as more spiritual than you are because you're keeping an external set of rules and regulations and not paying attention to your heart. In our verses, what God has provided and promised Judge Jephthah is overshadowed by something he thought he needed to do for God in order to earn what God had promised him. We're told that the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, assuring him victory over the Ammonite invaders. After he had received the spirit and he knew God's promise of victory, Jephthah vowed to offer a burnt sacrifice if God would give him the victory he just promised him he had given him. It turned out disastrously for Jephthah, and it will for us too every time we add to our faith some work of the flesh. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God supplies the Spirit to you by hearing with faith. And number two, God won't supply the Spirit to you by works of the flesh. Take a look, first of all, in verses 29 through 33 at the Spirit being supplied to us by hearing with faith. Now, I'm plagiarizing that phrase, hearing with faith. Those are the inspired words of the Apostle Paul when he wrote to confront Christians in the region of Galatia who were adding works to their faith. He said this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, Paul had come to the region of Galatia and he preached the gospel. The Gentiles there heard it and they received it by faith and they were saved. These Judaizers came in after Paul and they were teaching the Gentile Christians that salvation was by grace through faith plus the keeping of the law of Moses. Hence the idea that they were Judaizing. They were trying to turn Christians into Jews. The Galatians were going for it. They were starting to adopt Jewish rites and rituals as necessary for salvation. They needed to, and we need to, hear God's promises with faith and take him at his word, not adding our own works. Jephthah was the latest hero to be raised up by God to deliver Israel from her enemies. In this case, it was an invasion of the Ammonites. Jephthah began in the spirit. Verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Having read just that far, you already know the results of this battle. When Israel was walking with God, following God's leader, no force on earth could withstand them. Victory was assured before a single sword was even sharpened. The author says the Spirit came upon Jephthah. We might say he was filled with the Spirit, or anointed by the Spirit, or baptized with the Spirit, or clothed with the Spirit. Sometimes I think we get so into particular definitions of of what we're talking about that we miss the, the, the idea that the Holy Spirit has taken control of this individual to the extent that he will yield to him. And so just pick the one that makes the most sense to you to describe you believing God and then by faith receiving the power to walk with God to accomplish whatever it is he set before you in whatever circumstance that you're in.
So verse 29 goes on. It says, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and he passed through Mizpah of Gilead and from Mizpah of Gilead he advanced toward the people of Ammon. We read here that he passed through, he passed through, and he advanced. The writer is describing more than just the physical troop movements. It's language that suggests the walk of victory of a man dependent upon the Spirit of God. He was passing through to advance in victory. Your life and my life ought to be described as us passing through, advancing to our assured, already won victory over sin and death and hell. We sometimes talk about life as just passing through, right? We're just passing through. But if you're a Christian, you're passing through, advancing to some glorious end. The scripture says that you will be received into heaven and into glory uh, and that there's going to be a great party that takes place because you will be finally free from sin and you will have overcome death and hell and have eternal life. And so we are passing through advancing. Does that mean we never sin while we're passing through? Well, of course not. As long as we remain in our current unredeemed physical bodies, we have this predisposition to sin. But we also find the Holy Spirit residing in these bodies, never less powerful than the moment we were born again. It's why one of our favorite Bible verses to encourage folks is Romans 8:11, where we read, since the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So doesn't it make sense that the person whose power raised Jesus from the dead can give you victory over any sin? So we're in these unredeemed bodies. We have predisposition to sin. We call it the flesh. We want to uh, satisfy our natural appetites in excessive ways. But the Bible says that we're also the temple of the Spirit. He indwells us. He resides in us. And he is powerful enough if we yield to him for us to overcome sin and make our progress advancing to the end. So verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, surely the Lord's, uh, shall surely be the Lord's, excuse me, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. I want you to hold your thoughts on those verses for a moment, and let's finish looking at the battle in verse 32 and 33. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands, and he defeated them from Eror as far as Mineth, 20 cities, and to Abel Karamim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. What was Jephthah's strategy? How large were the respective armies? What weapons were utilized? Did anything miraculous occur on or off the field of battle? Did he take each one of the 20 cities the same way? Or were there different strategies in each city? I have a zillion questions like those reading this account. They're unanswered. Now, God has answered some of these questions in the past in the book of Judges. We get a lot of the strategy of Gideon, for example, all about how God won that battle, but nothing here. And and you have to think that they are unanswered for a reason, or at least their being unanswered suggests something. To me, it suggests the emphasis in this story is on the power of the spirit who came upon Jephthah, not how Jephthah accomplished the victory. If we had all of the details, 
we would be tempted to make a list of the three ways or the five ways or the seven ways that Jephthah got victory and then try to adapt them to our own lives. And we would miss the whole point here that the way he got victory was being clothed with the Spirit, by being filled with the Spirit, by being anointed by the Spirit. And whatever method was used, it could have been anything. And that's why God uses so many strange methods in the Bible. The jawbone of a donkey, an ox goad, uh, an earthen vessel with fire in it that's hidden. I mean, God goes to great lengths to say, I can use dirt clods if I need to, uh, because it's not the methodology, it's the power behind it that comes from believing and hearing in faith. As I pointed out earlier, the battle was won the moment Jephthah was filled and anointed and baptized and clothed with the Spirit. The details would be super interesting, but they would detract from the ministry of the Spirit. With that in mind, now let's revisit verses 30 and 31. Verse 30, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, if, who said anything about if the Lord would do this? The Lord said he was going to do it, and he gave him the spirit, and then Jephthah turns around and says, now, Lord, if you do this, in verse 29, the spirit came upon Jephthah, end of story, everything else is just mop up. Once the spirit is on scene in Jephthah's life and it's received, it's all over for the Ammonites, but he made a vow. Did God ask him to make a vow? Were there any conditions that God put on Jephthah to receive the spirit? No. All Jephthah needed to do was believe and receive the Spirit as his gift. The vow was all Jephthah. It was, we would say, all flesh. All of it an attempt to earn God's gift by adding a law that needed to be obeyed. It's, it's different but similar to what we said earlier with the Galatians and the Judaizers. Paul comes in, he preaches the gospel. You guys are saved by believing in Jesus Christ. Bam. End of discussion. You're, you're Christians. And then the Judaizers come in and say... If you're saved, you're going to keep this law. And then they start thinking that they must be circumcised to do it. It's an addition to what God had already done, and it detracts from the work of God. And so Jephthah is blowing it. Do Christians do this today? Sure we do. Any group, for example, that teaches water baptism is necessary for salvation is adding a work of the flesh to the grace of God. Salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, plus nothing, not even baptism. Should you be baptized in obedience to God? Of course. But it does not save you, and it does not make you more spiritual. You're passing through life as a Christian. Would you say you are advancing? If you're not advancing, if you're struggling, it might be that you think God the Holy Spirit is something you must earn by keeping some vows or laws rather than him being available to you in his fullness right now. What we're talking about today is our very human tendency to add the works of the flesh to the promises of God. If you're struggling with some sin, God the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and saved you from death and hell lives in you. I was watching The Matrix the other day. It was free on Amazon, all right, so don't judge me. Anyway, it echoes a familiar theme. I realize that it, there's a, you know, movies all have familiar themes, and in The Matrix, the main character finds out over time he is much more powerful than he ever imagined. Once he comes to that knowledge, it's all over for the bad guys. Same thing with Star Wars and The Force. 
You remember the key moment in the original movie? Use the force, Luke. And when he does, young Skywalker blows the Death Star to smithereens. In the next two installments of the original films, Luke grows in his knowledge of the Force till he can successfully face Vader and defeat the Emperor. Whether we're taught to think this way or whether we're wired to think this way, Christians live as though we must deserve the fullness of God's Spirit. We're told that the Holy Spirit only comes upon holy people. That might be true if the Holy Spirit were a force. The Holy Spirit isn't a force. He's a person. He's the third person of the triune God. As a person, he doesn't enter our lives a little at a time in response to our holy living. He comes and takes residence in us in his fullness. So when we talk about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit, they're not just the temple of the part of the Holy Spirit or the beginning of the coming of the Holy Spirit because he is a person. If somebody comes to your house, they're either inside or outside. They're not piecemeal, right? You don't look and say, where did that arm come from? (laughs) Ah, Gene's outside. I, I can't afford to feed him yet. And so, you know, later on we'll get his torso. But in the meantime, we just got part of him. No, it sounds stupid, and I, it's really stupid because I just made it up. But uh, anyway, you understand what I mean. You can't just have part of the spirit. If you're Luke Skywalker, sure, you can think, you, you just don't understand the force. If you're Neo, you don't know what's going on until all of a sudden you have your moment in black, and then you start bending time and all that. But the Holy Spirit's not like that. He's not a force. He's a person. It's therefore counterproductive and harmful even to think that we must somehow earn his power a little at a time. If you were saved later in life, or if you know someone who was, you likely see the radical testimony of the Holy Spirit's power. One minute I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and the next I was born again as a new creature in Jesus Christ. I was given immediate victory over many things, things that hold people captive, and so were some of you. Drug addictions and drunkenness and sexual immorality come to mind. They were all conquered effortlessly by the indwelling Holy Spirit. When you got saved, the counselor didn't say to you, now that you're saved and the Holy Spirit indwells you, in 25 years you will kick the habit because you will have grown to the point where you understand the Holy Spirit's power in your life. Right now, you can't really have much of the Spirit because you're such a baby Christian. But soon, believe me, just stick with this. Make some promises to God, keep your devotions, do all these things, and someday you'll have victory over sin. No, that's not what happens. You get saved, and all of a sudden, I don't want to drink anymore. I don't want to smoke pot anymore. I don't want to do drugs anymore. I don't want to live a sexually immoral life. I'm a new creature in Christ. In fact, I want to tell other people about what Jesus has done for me. But over time, Christians who were miraculously changed that way find themselves entangled in those same sins they were delivered from. And they start to think the Holy Spirit is unable to deliver them a second time. And so they turn to some system of vows or promise keeping or accountability to others. And they can't find lasting victory. Because now victory depends on them. God says, I've given you victory over this in the Spirit. And then like Jephthah, we say, if you've given me victory, then I'm going to go ahead and make these promises. And you're going to have to help me that way. Having begun in the spirit, we go forward in the flesh. 
and it doesn't really work. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit in his fullness to any believer who asks for him, and then he believes in faith that he or she has received him. He says, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now listen carefully to Jesus' words. He didn't say how much more of the Holy Spirit will the Father give as if he's parceling him out. He says, how much more will your Father give the Spirit? In other words, we're to realize that the Holy Spirit is given in his fullness. Taking a look at Jephthah, we can free ourselves of thinking the Holy Spirit is a force to be earned and instead believe we've received him to empower us. Now, Secondly, God won't supply the Spirit to you by works of the flesh. Let's refresh our memory as to the vow Jephthah made. Verse 31, Then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. What harm could such a simple vow be? After all, burnt offerings were prescribed by the law. It sounded very spiritual. Jephthah was victorious, but not on account of his vow. His vow would, in fact, completely and permanently taint the joy of Israel's victory, not just for generations to come, but right up until today. When he made the vow, he undoubtedly had in mind the first animal of his livestock that he would see. He should have been a little bit more specific. And that's one of the problems with extra-biblical vows and promises. We can't see their disastrous consequences for us and for others. It's better to simply walk by faith, listening to the Lord, depending on the Spirit to empower His Word, not our words. And so verse 34, when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. The scene is powerful with symbolism. A fruit of the Spirit is joy. The Apostle Peter speaks of joy unspeakable and full of glory. Jephthah's daughter represented the joy and the rejoicing that ought to have resulted from her dad simply taking God at his word. The Holy Spirit came upon Jephthah. Jephthah could have gone down and taken care of the Ammonites and come back, and all of Israel should have rejoiced in all of this. And that's what uh, the daughter thought was going to happen. But because Jephthah added works to his faith, joy was destroyed and rejoicing was turned into mourning. Verse 35, it came to pass when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. Jephthah blamed his daughter. It's your fault that there can be no joy now in Israel. I came back, I made this great victory and vowed to the Lord that I would give him this sacrifice, and now you have destroyed all of that. Well, that's not true, is it? Who made the mistake here? Jephthah made the mistake. But he's blaming it on his daughter, and this is what legalists always do. This is what people who make vows always do. It's always someone else's fault that they are not walking in victory and achieving what God wants for them. He refused to repent of his vow. Instead, saying, I've given my word, I cannot go back on it. In other words, he's too religious to admit he'd been wrong. He's too proud to announce what he had done. Think of all those Pharisees when they would accuse Jesus of something and then he would heal somebody. Why not just repent right there? Why not just realize that you're into some strange, weird religion 
that has nothing to do with the God of the Old Testament and that there is a power there that you can't deny, a power for good, a salvation. But no, Jephthah, hey, I made a vow. My vow is more important than the joy and rejoicing of all of Israel, and it's more important than your life. Another word for what we're talking about, I mentioned it, is legalism, and loosely defined, it's thinking that by performing certain works, I am more spiritual. By doing certain outward things, I am more spiritual. Pharisees of Jesus' day, I mentioned, and their Sabbath regulations are a good example. They thought themselves spiritually superior for keeping Sabbath laws, but it always exposed their bankruptcy. Jesus would heal someone on the Sabbath and say, take up your bed and walk, and they'd say, ah, you're breaking the Sabbath. And they wanted to murder Jesus because of it. So here you have these religious guys keeping the Sabbath, which to them meant you couldn't heal anybody on the Sabbath and they couldn't carry their bed if they were healed and then they want to kill you for it. That's what religion does for you. Verse 36, so she said to him, my father, since you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. This is amazing. She would submit to her father's rash vow in order to not make the situation any worse than it was. This could only get weird if she tried to flee or if everybody took sides. And so she rose to the occasion and said, I will submit. Legalism always hurts others who are trying to be spiritual. It derails their walk with God. Don't be someone who heaps burdens upon others, but rather try and help them carry them. Verse 37, so she said to her father, this, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, go, and he sent her away for two months and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. Jephthah's daughter is worthy of her own sermon. Once in the hills with two months to go, Man, that's a lot of distance to put between you and your dad. I would have just kept going, you know, and found some sanctuary somewhere. But she was willing to submit to all of this for the glory of God. She gave up the pleasures of this life, in their case, a husband, children, grandchildren, in order to bring glory to God in obedience to her father. Many of you have had a difficult life. Things did not go well. They didn't go as planned. Maybe right now you're in a really tough situation. And if you're honest, you're not really happy. And you feel you're giving up too much. I want to be careful in what I say next because I'm not advocating you submit to anything sinful. And I'm not saying that, for example, if you're being physically abused, you should take the abuse. We never say that. We never would. But all that aside, the Bible is saying through Jephthah's daughter, your obedience to God to bring him glory in a difficult life always outweighs what you think is your need to be happy. And, and this, is, this is so hard. It's hard for me to say this because I know how it hits people, but it's true. It's not that God doesn't want you to be happy. It's that God wants you to be obedient and he wants you to bring glory to him. And sadly, from one perspective, that sometimes means that you are a living sacrifice and you have to not uh, achieve some of the things that you think would bring you happiness. And Jephthah's daughter is a great example of that. She surveyed the situation, said, I'm not going to be I'm not going to ever have a husband. I'm not ever going to have children. I'll never be a grandmother. 
but this is the Lord's will for my life and I will make the most of it in obedience to him. It's hard, it's a hard saying, but so is what Jesus said that you'd pick up your cross and follow him. That's what he's talking about. Verse 39, so it was at the end of two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her, which she had vowed. She knew no man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. I know what you're wondering. Does this mean Jephthah offered her as a human sacrifice? Although possible, and some scholars say yes, I say of course not. So let me have one of the commentators who agrees with us speak. He says, the writer does not give us details of the young girl's death. He tells us that she told her father to do just as he had promised. She requested she be allowed to go out to the hills for two months to grieve over the fact she would never marry. And it became an annual custom for the young women to lament her. The last detail appears to be linked with the fact that she never married. The passage emphasizes that Jephthah's only daughter would never marry, which meant that his line would end. If we add to this the fact that Jephthah is listed among the faithful in Hebrews 11, it's very difficult to believe that he put her to death. Be real, I know that some of the saints in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 did some deeply flawed things. They did some crazy stuff, but do you think a guy who practiced human sacrifice would make it into Hebrews chapter 11 as one of the heroes of faith? I don't think so. Just looking at the text, we see in verse 39 that Jephthah performed his vow, and immediately it says, she knew no man. Of course, if she was dead, she would know no man, but it seems a strong clue that the manner in which the vow was kept was to render her a virgin in lifelong service to God. Her life became a continual burnt offering as she offered herself a living sacrifice. I got a little heavy a while ago with people who don't think they're happy, but all of us are continual burnt offerings before the Lord, living sacrifices, right? We're to present ourselves, the Bible says, living sacrifices. You know, living sacrifices, um, it sounds all, you know, like unicorns and rainbows, you know, in the Bible until it finally happens. I mean, sacrifices died on the altar. They gave their life and we're to give our lives for Jesus Christ and whatever that means in our situation. And so she became a living sacrifice. And whether she was sacrificed or not in terms of uh, a human sacrifice, which we say no, that's not really the point here, or at least we miss the point by spending so much time debating that. The point is that Jephthah made a rash vow thinking that it was necessary in order for him to really have the presence of the Spirit in his life. Ask yourself, what am I doing that I believe makes me more spiritual and puts pressure on God to bless me? For example, you should have what Christians commonly call devotions, but you should have them to enjoy the presence of God, not to perform a work that you think is necessary in order to be more spiritual. On the days that you don't have devotions, do you feel less empowered by God the Holy Spirit? I don't know, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I know a lot of Christians do. They think, oh, I missed my devotions this morning. I hope nothing serious happens because I'm kind of low in the tank. I, need, I didn't really fill up on the Spirit. Is he on the porch? Did you ask him to go outside? I mean, come on, that's the whole point of what we're talking about. He's a person that indwells you. You should have devotions because you want to know more about God and you want to dig into the Bible and you're excited about that, not because you're trying to earn 
more of God's power. If you're a Christian, you began in the spirit when you heard the gospel and responded by faith. You were forgiven your sins, past, present, and future. You experienced the power of God indwelling you, and you most likely walked away from habits and addictions into a brand new life. Over time, you may have gotten sidetracked by some teacher or teaching in a church or on the radio or in a book that suggested certain behaviors you must adopt in order to pressure God into blessing you. You were told you need to pray like an Old Testament character or keep a certain set of promises to God or spend 40 days discovering your purpose in life. You were told you can't be saved unless you've been baptized or unless you speak with other tongues or unless you keep a modern set of Sabbath regulations. All this stuff is out there. They are all vows of Jephthah when God has already given you his spirit and you've received him by the hearing of faith, you can't be made perfect now by the works of the flesh. One author said, when various man-made standards are evaluated, or excuse me, elevated to be an essential doctrine or held as a pivotal element of salvation, even if what is believed with good motives ends up being serious false teaching about holiness and the doctrine of the gospel. And so some of these things, they're good, Devotions are good. Baptism is good. But if they're elevated to something necessary to be saved or to experience God's power, then they become harmful. Some people think that we need to work for the gift of the Holy Spirit or earn this gift from God. Jesus made it plain that all we have to do is ask. By the way, first service, I realized, you know, people say the the Holy Spirit can only come to holy people. I can actually agree with that because every Christian is set apart unto the Lord. Every Christian is by definition holy. And so I know what they mean in church. They mean you need to not smoke or chew or go with girls that do, you know, because you need to not go to the movies. Uh, There are people who would have walked out because I mentioned that I even watch television, let alone The Matrix and Star Wars. There's this idea that you need to be holy, and how can you be holy if you're pursuing these kinds of activities? The Bible says every saint, every every Christian is a saint, is a set-apart one, is a holy one by virtue of God's salvation. And so uh, the Holy Spirit is yours in abundance. Here's what Jesus said, I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. Him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? If he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so the key word in all of that is ask. Now, why go on asking if we've received the Holy Spirit? Well, we like to say that he permanently indwells us and constantly infills us, we ask, reminding ourselves of this infilling because we tend to stray away from the hearing of faith into the works of the flesh. And so this is why we encourage in our own lives and the lives of others, hey, ask for a fresh filling of the Spirit because we have a tendency to think that the Holy Spirit isn't full in our lives anymore, that we haven't earned Him, that it doesn't seem to be working out for us. And so the Lord says, no, just ask, and and he's there. You've received him, and it's a reminder. 
we ask to remind ourselves that he who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us to give life to our mortal bodies. If when Jesus saved you by the power of his spirit, forgiving you all of your sins and setting you free from so many terrible things that you were involved with, that same experience can be yours again and again and again. You don't need the works of the world. You don't need the works of the flesh in order to experience that kind of deliverance because God says that power lives in you right now. Why don't you just ask for it and see what I will do? Amen?